This podcast is sponsored by Talkspace. May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and Talkspace, the leading virtual therapy provider, is encouraging people to talk it out in therapy. By talking or texting with a supportive, licensed therapist at Talkspace, you'll gain insights, discover truths, and experience breakthroughs that will improve how you live and how you feel. With Talkspace, just answer a few questions online, and you'll be matched with a therapist. And because you'll meet your therapist online, you don't have to take time off work or arrange childcare. You'll meet on your schedule, whenever you feel most at ease. Plus, Talkspace works with most major insurers, and most insured members only pay a $25 copay or less. No insurance? No problem. If you want to make progress toward a mentally healthier place, Talkspace is here for you. Now get $80 off your first month with promo code SPACE80 when you go to Talkspace.com. Match with a licensed therapist today at Talkspace.com. Save $80 with code SPACE80 at Talkspace.com. Hello and welcome to American Muslim Project. I'm Asad Butt. American Muslim Project is a podcast where we share the contributions Muslims are making to American life. In each episode, we elevate unique Muslim voices that are shaping this American experience. My guest today is Sarah Menkara, an internationally recognized champion for disability inclusion, leadership, individual empowerment, and social enterprise. Sarah recently launched her namesake organization that provides leadership trainings and workshops based on her decade of experience working in diversity, inclusion, and empowerment. Its flagship program is called Discovery in the Dark and features four immersive workshops utilizing the In the Dark methodology. During these sessions, participants are blindfolded, freeing themselves from visual cues and allowing people to connect without fear of judgment. Sarah proudly features her own remarkable journey in all of her work. She's a Muslim, a first-generation American woman, and she lost her sight at the age of seven. Sarah talked about what it's like to be at the center of those three identities. Yeah, so I always say, like, I'm a blind Muslim woman, and those are three identities that are dear to my heart, but they're also very visible, right? I walk down the street... I'm a hijabi, blind Muslim woman, right? And with those labels come a lot of assumptions. And in some ways, they can be attached to some negative assumptions, whether it's ableism, whether it's Islamophobia, whatever, or sexism, etc. But I've come to a point where, you know, I've come to a point, I am proud of who I am. I'm proud of those labels. And I think there's beauty behind every single label that, that I embrace. So that's why I really bring forward those three things very vividly and like to have conversations around those identities because people do, when I walk down the street, they question and they say, oh, she's blind. Oh, she's Muslim. You know, and, you know, and when I engage in those identities, then you have a dialogue and you start actually uh, closing the gap of misunderstanding and closing the gap of stigma and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah. So I like to kind of come forward with those labels. I feel like this is this is also part of your identity is, is engaging with people to overcome yes. those assumptions. And what I was wondering if you could talk to a little bit about what those assumptions are that people have mm-hmm. for you as a Muslim, yeah. as a woman, and as visual period. What what yeah. are those things? Yeah, um, as as a as a Muslim, right? Um, wearing the hijab, oh, um, someone forced you to do it, or you're oppressed, or you're not from this country, or you don't speak English, or you're not educated. On and on and on you know, as a person with a disability, oh, she probably has a, you know, she's probably suffering, she can't do, she, um, 
we feel bad for her. She's never, you know, continued education or doesn't have a work, you know, you know, she needs help, et cetera, et cetera. So like, you know, there's a lot of certain aspects to my identities that are attached with, yeah, these negative assumptions or these isms as we call it. Yeah. yeah. But for me, I will say like, you know, I'm proud to be blind. I'm proud to have a disability. I'm proud to be Muslim. I'm proud to be a woman. Uh, and and that comes across very vividly that you are proud of who you are today and mm-hmm. and what you are doing in this world. Can you can you tell me that that's unfortunately not the case for a lot of visually impaired people? Is is that right? Yeah, I mean, it's been a journey, but it first comes from the point of my parents who empowered us um, to embrace all of who we are and to really get me to see my disability as an identity and as a strength and as a purpose and. And also there was a faith aspect, you know, there's a purpose behind God creating us the way we are. There's a beauty in our imperfection. There's perfection in our imperfection. And I think when you see that there's a purpose and a beauty behind how you're created and who you are, you start embracing that. But I'm not, I, I, I would be lying to say that's how I was when I was young. I've had moments of weakness. I've had moments of doubt. I've had moments of frustrations, but to be honest, People with disability always say the greatest disability that we have is society's stigma and narrative. And if that stigma did not exist, to be honest, our struggles are very technical. They're, they're technical challenges, but the, the 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 greater challenges that we have is the stigma that we're always dealing with. Yeah, I, I was wondering if we'd share some of those stigmas, and especially here in the states, what are those what are those stigmas, and how do they compare to those in the Middle East? And you, you have a your background is Lebanese. What yeah. how does that compare to? to those in in Lebanon? I think no matter where we are in the world, there's ableism. Of course, in the U.S. it's more subtle, but still exists. Whereas in other countries, it's more in your face. You know, (laughs) I walk down the street in Lebanon and I hear the words always like, oh, may God cure you. Oh, I feel bad for you. Oh, yeah, haram, all these kind of things. And when I was younger, I would turn to them like, excuse me, you know, and I would be very feisty, you know. Um, You don't hear that in the U.S., but there are subtle, there is subtle ableism in terms of like um, uh, from both the education sector, the employment sector. Just look at most companies, right? When they look at employment of people with disability, they see it as a burden or as something they have to instead of they see it as something they want to include and employ people with disabilities, right? The fact that we're not at that point. If we want to include people with disability, we see the value. That means we still have such subtle ableism in our mindset. Um, and it's there. And I've dealt with it across the board going through college. I've had professors. I had a prof- professor that didn't want me in their class um, through my work. It's just different stages of my life. Um, the infrastructure is not accessible in our, in our country in many ways. When COVID hit, for instance, the disability population was the last population to be thought of, uh, considered when we were thinking about solutions and how to restructure systems, et cetera, right? So that means disability is still, still seen as an add-on to the system. And the fact that it's still seen as an add-on to the system, that means it's, there's still that subtle ableism in our, in our society. Yeah. My um, mother-in-law is actually a visually impaired educator um, and, and leader in the community. And, and I didn't realize, you know, the, uh, a lot of the issues, I just, I was yeah. unaware of it until, you know, uh, I became a part of her family and, and, yeah. and started to learn. And, and one of the things that uh, surprised me is just how um, inaccessible a lot of websites are, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. which I, I found really surprising. And um, I wonder if you could just talk about, you know, this kind of lack of awareness that 
Americans have on yeah. on accessibility. You know, it's it's and I, I would take a step further. Instead of lack of awareness, it's 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 still a mindset issue within our system and our society. I talk to a lot of people and um, until now, let's say a person that's develop, developing an app, right? Or developing a new program. And I say, oh, are you talking, are you making sure it's accessible for the disability population? And they're like, oh, that will come later when we're more developed. That mindset, right? That will oh, come later when it's further developed or when we have the resources means what? That the disability population is an add-on to the system. That mindset is across the board in most spaces, right? Websites can be easily made accessible, but it's because it's not thought of and from the get-go. That's why we still, that's why we see then accessibility as, an, as a burden, right? Oh, now we have to go back and make this website accessible. That's such an annoying thing to do, right? Um, but when we see from the get-go, we want to include disability, we want, we see the value. When we don't, we lose that on their value. Then from the get-go, you're going to start creating the system inclusive from, you know, from the beginning. So it's across the board. It's just not even, it's a mindset issue, right? Um, And it's fine. I always tell people, it's fine if you don't know how, just ask. It's fine if you, you know, just first think about and say, man, I need to make sure I'm inclusive. Let me ask. Let me ask how. But like that first thought process doesn't even come to most people. Yeah. And and I would say that I'm, uh, I don't know what the right word is, but that's been my thought process as well (laughs) over the years. And and I'm ashamed of that. And I have had that, you know, even with this new company that I'm starting for this podcast, I've, I've said to myself, Oh, I'll make it accessible down the line. Um, Even with having, you know, a family member who's an educator and, and, you know, reading your background and, and, and hearing from you now, I mean, this is now I'm going, I will be making this a priority (laughs) and you can hold me accountable. Okay. (laughs) Amazing. Amazing. And that's the beautiful thing about you, right? You're like, you're receptive to that. Right. Um, And that's, you know, that's, that's really awesome. Yes. Of course. Um, Part of it is also um, these businesses are missing out uh, on a lot of potential customers because the disability community is so large. Can you talk about that? Yeah. Exactly. One seventh of our population is a person with a disability. Actually, in the U.S., is one fifth. Wow. So that's huge. And of course, there's visible and invisible disability, right? And mental health and invisible disabilities are really big. It's still a really big sector that we still need to f- further uh, discuss and make sure that you know there's a lot of even more stigma on on invisible and mental health disability, right? But it's one fifth. It's twenty percent when we're not fully including people with disability and their potential, we're literally losing out 20% of our, our, our the value within our system, right? Yeah. We need to see them as value members. We don't need to see them as a charity or as just, I will say inclusion is not a human rights thing. Yes, that should be the baseline. But when we stop at the human rights lens, we say, I guess we have to. And that that phrasing, I guess we have to, because that's the right thing to do is really harmful because we'll never get to a point where we really want to right so anyways so in the and the percentage across the world is one seventh of the world's population you know how do we make sure that one billion are part of the system from the get-go yeah sure a a fascinating statistic and and very enlightening yeah Exactly. And I look at, to be honest, and, 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 you know, I look at, for me, like I say, it was a privilege and a blessing that I had parents that believed in me. Right. And my sister is also visually impaired. Um, and we became very much successful and empowered and successful because of them. Right. And they helped us tap, tap into our value potential. But I've also seen so many kids with disabilities across my travels 
that are just pushed to the side because of their disability, whether it's by their parents, whether it's by their community. And it breaks my heart. And I could have easily been in one of those kids' shoes, right? So it, it's it's majority of kids with disability across the globe that are, are living that reality of being marginalized. Yeah, and you've actually uh, created a nonprofit called ETI to help kids. Yeah. Um, can you talk about that? Yeah, so my first enterprise um, venture was ETI and Primary Integration. So I never thought in a million years I was actually I would actually start a nonprofit. I was I actually majored in math and economics in undergrad, and I'm an introvert at heart. So I was planning on doing a PhD, but then I ended up getting a grant from the Clinton Foundation to when I was a sophomore in college to run this inclusive summer camp in Tripoli, Lebanon, where my parents are from, where we brought together kids with and without disability, and um, that camp was so impactful for the kids, for the parents, especially for myself, because it was the first time I actually said to the greater community um, in Lebanon, so I'm proud to be blind. This is part of my identity. And from there, that snowballed into, into ETI as a nonprofit. And from there, it just grew into an international organization. And we evolved the mission because in the beginning, my mission was very technical. But um, I realized that in order for us to really address disability inclusion, we really need to change the narrative on all fronts, whether it's the kids, the parents, the teachers, the community members, everyone. It's not fair to, to just have it on the burden of the kids and the parents. And that's what we end up usually doing, so. It's amazing. One of the participants actually said to you that um, they never thought in a million years that they could contribute to society. Yeah. What does that yeah. mean to you? You know, it's just hearing that and hearing so many other kind of, you know, similar stories. It's just, you know, all it takes is at least that one person to say, you belong, you exist, you have value and you have, you're able to contribute. So seeing, seeing each person with a lens of value is just life-changing. And that's what we do in our programs. And kids come out of it in a very transformed way because the whole narrative they are dealing with is you can't. Yaharam, you're a burden. And even from their family, it's just, it's a constant narrative, right? And if you, that's the only narrative you are, are dealing with, what ends up happening, you start believing it. So we literally kind of gave them a glimpse of another narrative. And we've had a lot of kids come through our programs for many years who graduated, came back as volunteers, who went to college, who are now our champions for our programs. And, you know, and and I hope that continues. Can can you talk about um, Sarah Mankari Inc., the-, the Yeah, for the sure. Division? Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I last year launched a global consultancy firm um, that promotes authentic leadership. So what we focus on is how can we create a culture that brings forward authenticity and in for everyone. So people are able to bring their true self and in doing so more values brought forward and doing so more uh, better policies and decisions are made. Um, and I think we just, it revolves around this whole concept of the more we embrace ourselves and the more we bring our true self forward, there's just so much value that's brought forward that we can all benefit from. And the way we do that is we use the in the dark methodology in our work. And we, we've developed workshops like inclusion in the dark and leadership in the dark and design thinking, innovation in the dark. And that allows us to work with companies and government spaces and other spaces to really get their employees and participants to really understand more of 
who they are and how can they really start building the authentic culture at, at their work. Yeah, no, that that's amazing. Why did you decide to do this? I think it goes back to kind of the first question, right? Um, blind Muslim women, right? So if you meet me for the first time and you can't see me, you can't tell I'm blind or you can't tell I'm Muslim. And imagine you meet someone for the first time without seeing that person. You're not able to make a lot of labels and assumptions. Yeah. A lot, not all. And also when you meet a person and you know that person can't see, you also become more of your true self. You become more comfortable expressing more of who you are. So there becomes more authenticity in that conversation. And we start creating through these in the dark workshops, we start creating this, this space of vulnerability, openness, connection, authenticity, et cetera, which allows for really, um, you know, conversations around difficult challenges, et cetera. But the whole point of all of this, I will say, I'm not, we're not here to sell people to be blind at all. That's not my goal. I think the whole point is if you can see, see the beauty, if you can hear, hear the beauty, but how can you create pause take a step back and understand how we are all part of creating these narratives in society. And also these narratives in society are impact how we see ourselves. How can we start being um, becoming more intentional of how we, what we bring forward. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, Sarah talks about what it was like to go scuba diving for the first and only time. This is American Muslim Project. Welcome back to American Muslim Project. My guest today is Sarah Mankara, an internationally recognized champion for disability inclusion. I asked Sarah what it was like to grow up in the Boston area as someone who lost her eyesight when she was seven. We were probably the only Muslim family at that time. But it was, you know, we, it was perfect in some ways for us because the classmates of mine were the same from when I was five years old up to like, you know, 12th grade, right? So there was that consistency of, um, friendships and classmates. Um, when we lost our eyesight, starting at age seven, we lost m- most of our eyesight, and then it was a gradual decrease. You know, our town, even though they don't really have, ex- you know, it's not like they have a lot of experience with visual impairment, but because it was a small town, and my mom really was a huge advocate for us. She would make sure she saw that I was really strong in the math and science that she'd made sure that I was in advanced classes, even though sometimes the school would be like, oh, like, it's okay, they're blind, like have them go to the lower classes, right? It's easier for them. Um, but my mom saw the strength that's, you know, our strength and she pushed us and she made sure we advocated for us and she made sure we went to the, you know, advanced classes and um, she helped us actually become also empowered us to be advocate, advocate for ourselves. So I, I think that we were so lucky to be in the town that we were at in the, in the, you know, with, with the support system from my parents and teachers, a lot of my teachers like were very supportive in my, my education um, path. So um, yeah, I don't know if I answer that question. <laughs> yeah, no, that was, that was, Sorry, I forgot. I was like, I was like, what's the question? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> no, it happens to me all the time. No, I was, I was uh, busy listening to you that. I, yeah. I, I got lost as well. Um, I, 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 I find it uh, amazing that your mom and your parents, you know, helped you find a space for yourself growing yep. up. I, I, I wonder when you did become blind at seven, were you angry with the world? Were you angry with, with God? Well, I mean, to talk to me about your reaction at, at that age. That's a good question. Um, 
I think my experience was a bit different from my sister. My sister was the first one to lose her eyesight because she's older and she, you know, I think her experience was no one knew what was going on when it happened to me. Then my mom, like, so we were in our summer house and which overlooked these big, beautiful mountains. And that, that day that I lost my vision, I woke up and I couldn't see those mountains anymore. And I remember telling my mom and my mom realizing her second daughters have also become blind. I don't remember getting angry. I remember my mom really hugging me tightly and saying, everything's okay. Um, my mom never let us pity ourselves. Never. Uh, I don't, she never showed tears. Um, she actually told me, once I didn't know, I didn't know this. She's like, Sarah, the only time I cried about your visual impairment, like your eyesight situation was when we would go to the eye doctors and it would be pitch black when we're doing all these tests and just like pitch black in the room and no one can see her. And that's when tears would come down. I never knew that. I, you know, for me, for I just saw my mom as someone like, okay, you're blind now. Let's, let's just move forward and make sure you got your education. And there we go. And I think that helps, right? Because I think if the parents pitied, like had like a lot of, oh, it's going to be so hard and, you know, then we'll start pitying ourselves. Not to say I've had moments in my life of frustrations at this world. I've never had frustrations upon Allah. And that's because I think I, I there's a few reasons. One is that I, I've never prayed for my eyesight. I've always prayed, God, bring to me my life, whatever will get me closer to you, whatever is good, whatever is good for me in the Sunni and Akhra. I've, that was always my prayer. I've never prayed for my eyesight back. And there's also... Um, I think in some some ways, my blindness gave me so much resiliency and perseverance and stubbornness. And I saw that it just like gave me a lot of drive to like, okay, you know what, I'm going to prove to the world that I am actually going to amount to something. It's just I think I always tell my friends joke around. I was like, if I wasn't blind, I think I would have been become a really boring person, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> i truly believe that so i don't know <laughs> yeah no I, yeah. that's that's great what were some of the obstacles so you are an accomplished yeah you know academic you you have gotten you went to wellesley undergrad and harvard grad school what yeah. were some of the obstacles that you faced during school and and yeah. and then again also maybe like what why is education so important to you yeah oh that's a good question so a couple things one is i'll give you one example of obstacles undergrad, you know, when you're entering your junior year, it's like everyone goes on study, studies abroad, right? You apply to different programs. And I got into Cambridge University and I was so excited. I was like, oh, it's always been my dream and I want to go. And ahead of time, I talked to them about, you know, with the disability office officer at Wellesley about make sure I had the accommodations. I go with my parents and they were awful across the board in terms oh, of providing man. the right accommodations. And we tried for two weeks. And after those two weeks, my friend's like, nope, we're not letting you here. We're taking you, we're bringing you back. And I was so upset. And I also felt like I was a failure. I was like, oh gosh, I couldn't do this. You know, I couldn't, you know, and that's just one example of a lot of other examples. Right. But over time you learn. And now I've, I'm a huge advocate for myself and others. You also need to choose your battles because it can become very emotionally tiring and exhausting to always be advocating, to be honest, because you know, the world is not accessible now on a daily basis as things come up that, are, you know, that are, you know, they're not accessible or inclusive. And then to your second question, why is education so important? Um, I'll tell you something that's very contradictory. It's contradictory to what I teach in some ways. Education has given me credibility, you know. Yeah. Um, I go in the world, around the world, and I say I went to Harvard, then automatically people shift their lens from seeing me of a woman 
oh, she probably can't do anything. Joe, I'm like, what? You went to Harvard? It's that switch in yeah. seconds hearing that, which is wrong. Because what I call for in the, through the, in the, is, you know, my company right now and in the dark programs, I say we shouldn't value people based on labels. We should see everyone through a lens of value. Everyone has something valuable to contribute. So anyways, but yeah, education has given me the, the platform of credibility that allows me now to do the work that I want to do to hopefully disrupt the, disrupt the notion around what value is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Amazing. Um, you call yourself a troublemaker. Can you explain that? I am a troublemaker because I, I think that in the, and really addressing issues at the core, you need to disrupt the status quo. You cannot just address it from a very technical lens. It's so much easier for us to address it from a technical lens, so much easier. Um, anything, whether it's, you know, talking about disability inclusion, doing something like checking off the box or, and I think in many times people don't want to hear, address the elephants in the room, right? You know, I'll give you an example, very simple example. I was in a in a meeting and there was a country that, that was saying that, oh, they're going to change um, the phrasing from persons with disability to persons with determination. They're just changing that phrasing. And they were so proud. And I actually asked them, I was like, did you guys, did you guys actually work with people with disability in, 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 in coming up with that term? And I personally think that that phrasing is counterproductive because let's be real. I am blind. I am someone who cannot see. I am a person with a disability. That is a reality. What we don't need, I don't want you to change that in me. I want you to actually change the negative connotation towards my disability. Mm. So when you avoid addressing and talking about disability, you're actually increasing the, 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 the stigma in some sense, because you're making people even much more uncomfortable talking about disability. You're avoiding the, the, the issue at hand. So, yes, I am a person with a determination, but I'm also a person with a disability. Yeah. Don't take that away from me. Just change the connotation towards that. Yeah, that's really interesting. And, and um, something that I took away from your TED Talk that you had online is that you said mm -hmm. that every single one of us has disempowered someone even without knowing. Can you talk yeah. about that? We are all humans and part of our nature in some ways our nature is, is we judge right and to some degree judgment's helpful right we see a line in front of us we're not going to say oh line let me give you the benefit of the doubt you're going to run away that's the reality you're going to be smart and run away when it comes to humans that's where judgment we need to actually be more uh, um, aware of our judgments and we all make we all labels and we all make assumptions um, towards people and sometimes those assumptions can be very disempowering. I think the important step is it's not a switch of a button to say, okay, I'm no longer, I don't judge anymore. No, I mean, I wish it was like that, to be honest. But I think it's taking that time and space to reflect and understand yourself. Understand, first of all, who are you? What parts of yourself are you not embracing? Why is that the case? And then also, what are the, the, the identities you focus on when you meet people for the first time? And why is that the case? Because there's always a reason for why. But approach those questions to yourself with a compassionate lens, because the more you understand yourself, the more you're going to then understand how you're interacting with others. Yeah, certainly. It's a powerful message for sure. And I'm glad that you shared that. Um, Going back to uh, the assumptions that we make of people, I was surprised to see a picture of you on Instagram scuba diving. 
<laughs> oh yeah. That? <laughs> so okay, which is um a thing on my bucket list, but I don't think I'll do it again. Um, <laughs> I'm just saying because let's be real. Uh, as a blind person, what's the point of scuba diving? You're underwater, you can't see, and you can't hear. I don't yeah. understand the purpose. And that was my mom's question: Why did you do that? And I was like, you know what, mom, you're right, but I just wanted to do it. So I did it. It was, I, I it was really tough to be honest, um, because one of my life fears is to lose my hearing. Um, even though I know if I ever do, I know I'll be able to figure ways to figure it out. And on top of it, I don't think it's just that you can't hear, you can't see, but then also your breathing is dependent on that regulator. So I'm like, yeah. what if, what if something happens and I can't communicate? And what if they can't see me? What if they don't, la, 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 you know, all these different things, but I mean, at least I got it. I did it. And there we go. Yeah. Well, <laughs> can you talk about what was that sensation like to be underwater and, and not be able to see and, and all that kind of stuff? Not great. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's listen, amazing. My friends who can see, they can see the fishes and the sea animals and all. I can't see any of those things. <laughs> and I'm just like, I can't see and I get here. What's the point of this? <laughs> um, so <laughs> that's, that's literally what, you know, what I tell you. It that's was amazing. okay. It was not that great. <laughs> yeah, that's very funny. Um, it, did push you... my, it did push my limits. I, I was proud of how I pushed my comfort boundaries. Yeah. I think I was very proud of that. No, I think that's something definitely to be proud of. And, and I've done scuba diving before as well. Oh, you have? Very, how was it for you? Oh, it, it, it was uh, great and terrifying. And yeah, um, yeah, yeah, I haven't done it since. 20, it's been 20 years. So. Okay, good. So, so for me, take out the grades. It was terrifying. Yeah. So. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> That's so funny. Um, one question that I like to ask people is, do you have a uniquely American Muslim experience that you want to share? Um, I don't know if this is uniquely American Muslim, but like this is a uniquely blind American Muslim um, where, I mean, that's not unique, but my friend who's also Muslim says, Sara, you're so lucky you can't see because you're just so comfortable in your own skin when it comes to you. Uh, doing certain things. So to give you more context, we were in the airport in Dallas and we needed to pray. And I was like, okay, let's just find a corner. She's like, there's no corner. I was like, okay, let's just pray here. And then she's like, but Sarah, there's people around. I'm like, so? I can't see them. And she's like, oh, well, I can see them. I was like, well, close your eyes. So like, wow. and then, so anyway, so I'm really comfortable just praying anywhere. Um, uh, and it was very uncomfortable for her, but she's learned over time to get more comfortable. Um, she's like, Sada, it's really amazing that you can't, you're not impacted because you can't see people looking at you or judging you and all that kind of stuff. Um, and that allows me to be more myself. So that's one of my blessings. But a question for myself always is, if I ever get my eyesight back, would I be still the same way? Would I still act in the same way? And that's a question I always ask myself. So I don't know. Yeah, that's a fascinating question. And yeah. I, mean, I mean, just the way that you describe it, to me, that sounds ter like as terrifying as you going scuba diving is praying. <laughs> Just anywhere at an airport with all those people looking at me, I could, I could, yeah, it's fascinating. Poor friends of mine, but like, yeah. <laughs> well, you make us do. <laughs> That's too funny. Um, do you have any recommendations for books, movies, uh, TV shows, podcasts? So, I mean, anything like that that we should be watching or um, listening to, yeah. or Definitely. Um, Crip Camp um, is an amazing documentary um, that has Judy Heumann and um, it's on Netflix and it's about the disability kind of movement in the U.S. Um, 
Man's Search for Meaning. It's the book by Viktor Frankl. And I think it really, it, it, it talks about the journey of purpose and finding happiness. And, um, and I think it connects a lot with the work of finding your own purpose and value in life. Um, and uh, yeah, I think those two things. Yeah, those are great recommendations and, and definitely we'll share that with our audience. Yeah. Um, Sarah, I, I just want to thank you so much for joining American Muslim Project. This has been a, a fantastic conversation and, and I look forward to having you on again in, in the future. Thank you so much. I mean, it was such a pleasure and an honor um, to have had this conversation with you. My conversation with Sarah was recorded in July of 2021. Her website is sarahmincara.com. We'll have links to that in our show notes. Uh, just a quick note, after recording this interview, I took a free online test to see if our website is fully accessible. It is not. We had a whopping 14 errors, which we are hoping to fix across the next couple weeks. I highly recommend that you get your website tested as well. We'll have a link to one of those places where you can do it for free on our website. American Muslim Project is a production of Rafaelion Media. Today's show was produced and edited by Mark Ganado, Lindsay Gamble, and me, Asad Butt. Simon Hutchinson did our theme. Follow us online on our soon-to-be fully accessible site, AmericanMuslimProject.com. Yeah.